0: To hosting you for a book talk followed by lunch. The book has not yet been published, so you are in for a real treat of a preview of some forthcoming work by Professor Eric Clays. Chad Squidieri of Catholic University is going to give an introduction in just a few minutes, and then afterwards we'll have box lunch available as well. So we hope you enjoy your time
1: at the conference And without further ado, let me hand it over to Professor Squidieri. Great. Thanks so much. And uh, so my name is Chaz Squateri, I'm a professor at the Catholic University of America. Well, I'm a law professor there. Uh, I'm also a fellow within the Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition, uh, the CIT for short. At CIT, we explore the relationship between American constitutionalism and the Catholic intellectual uh, tradition. And American constitutionalism uh, is broad and includes, of course, uh, things such as originalism, but we view it as broader than that. And the Catholic intellectual tradition uh, explores legal and political thought. Uh, from thinkers such as uh, Aquinas and um, uh, St. Augustine, but also thinkers who didn't hear the gospel, uh, such as Aristotle and Cicero. Uh, So At CIT, we promote our mission through panels and discussions such as this uh, through a course offered at the law school and also through fellowship opportunities uh, for both law students, and uh, young uh, lawyers in the DC area. So if you're interested in that, uh, please check out our website for more at Catholic, or cit.catholic.edu. So here at CIT, we are of course co-sponsoring today's event uh, with Cato. So on behalf of CIT, just want, really wanted to thank the folks at Cato uh, for having us here <clears throat> uh, today. And today we're of course here to talk about Professor Eric Clay's new book, uh, Natural Property Rights. And let me just start by saying uh, that the, the draft of the book that I've read is really fascinating. I think it's gonna be a of, of uh, wide interest, including to property scholars and theorists that are interested in uh, natural rights more generally, but also I think it would make a, a good summer read uh, for perhaps the 1L law student who, who has just taken their property class. They have the basics of property uh, under their belt, and now they would like to dive a bit more deeply into the theory. So I think Eric does a great job at, at speaking to both audiences. So the way that today's panel will work is I'll I'll start off with a brief introduction of the backgrounds of our two uh, esteemed panelists, Uh, I'll then turn it over to Eric for about 15 minutes to offer an introduction to his book, and then we'll turn it over to Matt for 15 minutes so he can tell us all about how Eric is wrong, I suppose, Uh, and then we'll uh, turn it over uh, to Eric for about five minutes rebuttal, and then I'll I'll moderate a discussion between our two panelists, and most excitingly, we'll then turn it over uh, to you all in the audience both online and here in the room. Uh, So we're really looking forward to those questions. So please uh, uh, get get thinking about what you might want to ask. So let me start with just some brief uh, background information. So Professor Eric Claes is a professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. His scholarship focuses on natural law and natural rights and their implications in property law. He is a member of the American Law Institute. Uh, where he uh, serves as an advisor to the Restatement Fourth of Law Property. Professor Clays received his A.B. from Princeton University and his J.D. from the University of Southern California Law School. He clerked for the Honorable Melvin Brunetti on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and the Honorable William Rehnquist, Chief Justice of the United States. Matthew P. Cavadon is, of course, a visiting legal fellow here at the Cato Institute. He also serves as the Robert Poole Fellow at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. Uh, His previous experience is broad and includes working as a constitutional fellow at the Institute for Justice, uh, clerking for the Honorable Lisa Godby Wood of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Georgia, as well as the Honorable Nels D. Peterson of the Supreme Court of Georgia. After serving as an, ass- he also served as an assistant public defender in Gainesville and Dawsonville, Georgia. He is a graduate of Harvard College and received his J.D. and Master of Theological Studies from Emory in 2015. So, with that, Eric, I turn
2: it over to you. Thank you very much, Chad, and I want to thank Cato and the Project on Constitutional Orig- Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition for co-sponsoring this event, giving my book and my thoughts uh, a forum. I want to thank Matt for his gracious introduction at the beginning and the commentary he's about to give, and thank Chad for his uh, gracious remarks to introduce the two of us. And in these remarks, I don't have that much time to introduce what's going to end up being probably about a 400 to 420 page book. So I'm going to try to focus on a few key points in rifle shot order. And what I hope to do is to roll out the main claims of the book and to illustrate with two examples. And the examples I'm going to uh, bring out, I hope what they do is they they show how a Lockean approach to property works. And I hope also, though, that it shows how a Lockean justification for property might relate on one side to more libertarian approaches to property and approaches the property that might be associated with Catholic social thought or the Catholic social tradition. And in these remarks, I'm gonna use one piece of jargon. I'm gonna talk about interested Catholics. And when I say that, I hope every time you, you hear that, you think that means people who are interested in using Catholic social thought and the Catholic, tradition, Catholic intellectual tradition to, and interested in bringing them to bear on issues in contemporary public policy, uh, seems to me interested Catholic just goes a lot faster than what it just took me 20 seconds to say. And because the book is still being finished, I'm going to to submit it to my publisher this summer, there's still time for me to revise, extend, and so if people think that I'm getting wrong what I expect libertarians might, might say about property or what various Catholic thinkers think, I'd be curious to say I've still got time to avoid making mistakes in published form. So I'll then go to the main claims of the book, and from there I'll go to a couple of case studies to illustrate those claims. So natural property rights introduces surprise theory of natural property rights, but then the question is exactly how are they natural and how are they structured? And so here I guess I'm going to draw a very crude analogy between my book and a meatloaf. And so if my book is a meatloaf, the, the, the meat, the burger in the meatloaf is John Locke's theory of labor. Uh, it, it, the natural right is a right structured to facilitate labor. Um, and, but the, the, that right, uh, I guess, then go into the next part of the meatloaf. So meatloaf, you need something like hamburger helper, helper to build out it. And so the hamburger helper comes from Hugo Grotius, comes from Samuel Pufendorf, and from Thomas Aquinas. And, Grotius and Pufendorf were more lawyers than philosophers, and they stressed that property rights needed to be structured in a way that made clear claims of possession. And so the natural rights, they facilitate labor in such a way that they signpost claims of possession to people who are not uh, themselves proprietors. And then Aquinas comes in just because the labor and the claims of possession both are subordinated. They're expected to help people be the kinds of people they're expected to be as a matter of natural law. Uh, In the scholastic tradition, uh, natural law consists of principles of morality. They're knowable by human reason and people are beings who can reason and understand what moves people, what makes people better or worse. And, and uh, people, the best people, uh, flourish in an object, uh, objective and rational sense. And so natural rights are rights to labor, to survive, to preserve oneself, and to thrive, meaning to do things that are going to help the actor flourish in an objective and rational sense. And since well socialized people understand that they need to operate with others, then natural property rights entitle the holders to freedom, but that freedom is coordinated then to be consistent with the like rights of other rational beings who might want to pursue their own flourishing. And so the first half of the book then introduces natural law and natural rights and justifies natural property rights. And then the second half of the book takes these ideas about natural law and natural rights and shows how they apply in all the gory details that are first year that Chad mentioned, uh, studies in a property course. So if there's a fox on the beach and nobody owns it, how does the unowned fox become a, a, a property that's of some pr- uh, pr- uh, private actor? Then how do simple property rights, turn uh, get ju- like, uh, how do the simple rights justified as a matter of natural rights, how do they get justified and converted into pr- uh, private rights in law, like rights of ownership, where instead of having a right to use something, you have a broad right of managerial authority, you can sell, you can can mortgage on the thing, and uh, you can produce things and sell off the produce from what you own. Rights of ownership at law can be limited by uh, different servitudes and common carrier limitations and the book walks through the justifications for those rights in natural law. Property law though, also before you can have property in something like real estate, you need to know what real estate is. So go back to the fox and, and think about real estate. So if you catch a fox, that fox is the object on which property law focuses. If you buy something with a deed, the deed gets you the land, but it gets you dirt underneath the land. If there's minerals in the dirt, you have rights in the minerals. You have the, probably have the right to the fixtures on the land. And so property law packages different resources. Some, some parts of property law, one resource, one legal thing. Other parts of property law, a cluster of resources, one legal thing, and, and so there's a chapter on those, those, those distinctions. Then I go through the, the ways in which an owner can slice and dice rights of ownership. So If you own land, you can become a landlord, assign to somebody else a leasehold, and keep for yourself a reversion. If you own a, a, a car, you can borrow with a lending on the, or borrowing on the car, and so you have a car encumbered by a security interest like a mortgage and those can be justified in natural law subject to restraints respecting the rights of other people especially third parties and then finally a a, uh, once you have a system of ownership and all the different lesser rights like present estates and future interests and security interests and easements and on and on and on then you need a system of law to protect people's rights and there are two systems of law in the anglo-american tradition that do that At common law, there are basic tort responsibilities not to interfere with others' property rights. And so the book studies nuisance to illustrate how those principles work, how property rights engender responsibilities not to interfere with others' uses. And then the government may also, by public law, secure and order property rights. And so the last two chapters in the book focus on the police power, the power to regulate property so that legal rights are regularized or made specific and determinate in a manner that helps people underlie exercise their underlying substantive rights and government also has a power to uh, condemn property via eminent domain sometimes the government needs to be a steward for everybody and acquire a resource for uh, to use on behalf of everybody and the power of eminent domain justifies that that power but the power to regulate and the power to condemn via eminent domain have limits that run with the justifications and so the two chapters on the police power and the eminent domain power justify each power but then mark off the limits on each so let me move then to the two case studies and the the two are uh, one is going to be called forced pooling and the other one i'm going to call eminent domain supported economic development eminent domain supported economic development occurs when a government decides that Some neighborhood is not being put to the highest possible use. Sometimes governments say the neighborhood is a slum or is blighted. And the government uses the power of eminent domain to condemn private property in the neighborhood and hand it off to a commercial developer or to hand it off to a business. So a condemnation to go to a big box retailer is an example. Uh, The condemnation to, uh, to, the condemnations that happened in Anacostia to make way for the Washington Nationals baseball park example. And most famously and probably known in this audience the condemnations in the neighborhood Fort Trumbull in New London to make way for uh, businesses and office facilities next to a new plant for the Pfizer company that was a condemnation that led to the US Supreme Court case Kelo versus New London. And force pooling is a government institution uh, in energy law, oil and gas law and in pooling there will be many people who own land, or they own the severed mineral rights in a reservoir of oil or gas, and they want to extract as much oil and gas as they can from the reservoir, and they worry that if they will not, by their own voluntary coordination, get the most uh, of oil or gas out of the reservoir. Rights holders can petition a state energy commission, asking if the Energy Commission come in and pool all their rights. And if the rights are pooled, the government then decrees that the government gets control over how the rights are exercised. The government will bring in an energy producer to extract the greatest amount of oil or gas, and then the, uh, the, uh, the people whose rights are pooled then get royalties prorated to the interest that they had in the reservoir, given the rights they had before pooling. So, why do I talk about uh, eminent uh, eminent domain-supported economic development and forced pooling? And two reasons. One is it brings deep questions of theory down into the details of the practice of property. Uh, People who have practiced property know it's not all about things like Robert Nozick's hypothetical about whether you can, if you pour tomato juice into a sea, you've appropriated the sea with your tomato juice. Uh, There are a lot of interesting theoretical questions about why to have property and when it's just for one person to acquire rights in a resource. But for lawyers, you get into questions, uh, uh, how can a government uh, uh, force a group of people together and on what legal criteria? And these two examples are two very representative meat and potatoes examples that way. At the same time, force pooling and economic development with Evan Domain, they raise really profound questions of theory. They are analogous to questions. They're, they're questions in property analogous to the questions one might ask in a system like a theory of personal liberty. Why can the government order somebody to go sign up for the draft and go fight in a war? Why can the government order people to get a vaccination they might not want to get? In these two practices, the government is condemning otherwise valid conventional legal rights and saying there's some public need for you to surrender your valid legal rights. And libertarians and interested Catholics both are, are concerned about this. So uh, Robert Nozick's book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, the title suggests the challenge for libertarians. Is the state better than anarchy? Why is the state better than anarchy? In what circumstances is the state Uh, institution that provides results that secure rights better than anarchy would. And for Catholics, they know that the fountainhead of the Catholic intellectual tradition goes back to St. Augustine, and in City of God, he asks, what makes the state different from a gang of robbers? And in different ways, Nozick and Augustine are asking questions, why does a government have justification to force people to do things that they might not otherwise do? especially when the government has a monopoly of force and can jail people or fine people or physical, physically coerce people to do things they don't want to do. And the, the eminent domain, as used in economic development, force pooling are two vivid examples because the government's condemning property rights with the threat of government force uh, backing up the, the, the threats. So I posit that that libertarians, uh, would, would uh, they would uh, say that eminent domain is used in economic development is troubling. And they would split, some libertarians would think that forced pooling is acceptable, it's facilitating uh, the exercise of rights, and others would think it's as troubling as eminent domain is used in economic development. By contrast, interested Catholics, I think they would think forced pooling is an acceptable practice, and they would split on, on the use of eminent domain in economic development. I have in mind, for example, that the Archdiocese of Detroit was very supportive of the use of evident domain to clear out a neighborhood in Detroit called Pole Town to make way for a GM plant back around 1980. And in the book, I, I suggest that natural rights offer kind of a split decision. They, they, natural rights lay out a justification for property and a justification for regulation that allows for governments to reorder in cases like these. The, the justification sets out criteria. And I suggest that the the, the criteria will apply differently in different cases, and you have to look at the facts of a particular case. But by and large, it seems unlikely or difficult for governments to justify using evident domain to clear out residential neighborhoods for economic development. And it seems likely that if the law is is tailored the right way, a, a a government can authorize and go along with forced pooling. And the basic argument goes like this that that, uh, property rights, again, they're meant for the natural property rights are supposed to help people put resources to uses that contribute to human flourishing or human preservation. If the resource is oil or gas, those tend to lend themselves to a few narrow uses, most likely combustion for energy or use as an ingredient in chemicals like plastics. And for those kinds of uses, the oil, the gas has to be brought into human circulation. It's reasonable then to impute to people who have the rights an interest in seeing the resources get extracted to the greatest extent possible. And uh, and if government sponsored uh, oversight by pooling will help do that, then uh, fine. And then in law, you need to uh, analyze whether a a pooling law seems necessary and it secures to the owners an, an advantage. And here, it's necessary to bring up oil by government supervision, just because all of the people who have rights have rights in oil that moves around in one reservoir, and you need some centralized actor to take the greatest advantage possible of geothermal pressure to get all the oil up. And then, if that is in fact necessary, then you need to make sure that the people with the rights get back benefits, advantage from the, the, the government sponsorship uh, in proportion to the rights they had, and the royalty schemes that you see in pooling systems allow that to happen. By contrast, if, you have, if you're talking about eminence of domain and economic development, land is put to many, many different heterogeneous uses, and it's harder to impute to people one interest in using land in any one or two ways. And so when you ask whether it's necessary for a government to come in or and – Move land around, you have to worry that that you 're threatening a lot of idiosyncratic subjective plans by different people and in practice with, with eminent domain and economic development, in lots of cases, a stadium can go in one of a different bunch of different places or development can make exceptions for the one or two owners who are residents who want to stay there and it 's not as necessary to get all the people in a neighborhood to move out to realize the project. And in the details, uh, as used in practice, eminent domain um, <coughs> does not give people uh, benefits like the benefits you get from the royalties. Uh, I think that owners tend to be shortchanged in eminent domain condemnations. So then, uh, I think that what you see coming out of that is an understanding of government power where government power is acting on behalf of all of the relevant uh, people in the community, the way a partnership acts on behalf of all the partners. And that's more communitarian than a libertarian understanding of government justifications, but it might not be as communitarian as some understandings of the common good in the Catholic intellectual tradition. And that's the insight I'm trying to push through the, the entire book, working through all the details of property law, but that's probably a good place for me to stop.
1: Great. Eric, thank you very much. And now, Matt, over to you.
0: Thank you, Professor Clays, And thank you for your enterprise in general. I think looking at contemporary practical questions with reference to historical intellectual traditions and roots is really important. I think it provides critical light for us to think through tricky issues with new perspectives. Going back to the sources, just like originalism in general, right? you find new directions by going back into the origins of things that we now take for granted. So I want to applaud your focus on trying to marry a close look at Locke and his intellectual forebears with contemporary problems. Back in the early 1980s, Yale law scholar Robert Cover wrote an influential article called Nomos and Narrative, and in it he argued that there's no Ten Commandments without a book of Exodus attached. That in order to understand rules and laws, constitutions and norms. You have to look at how people interpret history. I think that has a lot of bearing when we talk about John Locke, as do you. You dedicate one of the chapters in your forthcoming manuscript to a historical problem involving John Locke, which is the European colonization of the Americas. This was a significant problem for John Locke during his lifetime in the 1700s not just because it was an ongoing thing he felt like commenting on, but because he was personally involved in it. John Locke drafted North Carolina's charter. He was personally involved in authorizing colonial exploits. And America appears over and over and over again in Locke's myth or narrative of property itself. We're gonna have to go back a little further than St. Augustine in order to uncover this, we have to go back all the way to the book of Genesis because that's where Locke starts. It's the history that he uses to interpret contemporary issues in his lifetime. According to Locke, God created all of creation without delineating property to any one person. He says that if God gave everything to Adam, the first man, you would be looking at a monarch who owned everything, which in fact is the legal theory behind eminent domain but it's one Locke rejects. Locke believes that all creation was originally common, but that then God had to, of necessity, create some sort of way, based on natural law, for human beings to appropriate property, to divvy it up. The theory that Locke hits on is labor, that people mix their labor with things out there in the world, and that's how they get a natural claim under natural law, God's written plan for creation to lay claim to individual things out there. Locke almost immediately turns from Genesis to the American context. He says that for an Indian who plucks an acorn or kills a deer, the acorn or the deer do no good to them unless they can make an individual property claim based on that. And so this is an example of them mixing labor taking the act of killing a deer or reaching up and pulling an acorn off a tree, that that then confers a natural, individual property right to possess and use that piece of property. For Locke, this is where property begins. These are the natural property rights, is to use your labor. There are some exceptions. You can't use it in a way to claim the entire world and leave nothing for anybody else. But nevertheless, there's a strong presumption that the use of labor is what gives rise to property by natural law. In fact, Locke says, there's a lot of land back in merry old England that's still held in common. That is not residue of nature. It's actually part of a compact of civilized people who are rich enough to go ahead and set part of the village green aside later on. Locke says that the American commons laid waste that the tribes that were here, the indigenous peoples of this continent, did not effectively exploit and use the continents, that they didn't appropriate the resources, they didn't develop, they in fact disobeyed the natural law from God to subdue the earth. And therefore, Locke says, they deserved punishment, that it was appropriate for Europeans to come over to this country and take and exploit those resources, to put them to work, for the benefit of humanity in ways that indigenous people had not. This was not an academic exercise for Locke. Locke was involved in crafting the plan for the colonization of the Carolinas. Locke thought about property and natural property rights in a way that directly justified Europeans coming in and appropriating land, appropriating resources, dispossessing the people who were here and putting those resources to work for their own purposes. Locke actually says the clearest example out there of a failure to put things to work using labor is America. Professor Clay's recognizes that this is a problem and in fact says that Lockean natural rights make it hard to critique that process. You say it's not? Quite as simple of a picture given Nozickian natural rights, and I'm not gonna get too far into the weeds on Nozick, but that Locke actually doesn't give you a whole lot of resources to push back. English history suggests two things. One, from an intellectual standpoint, that was true. Roger Williams was one of the only Englishmen to criticize the process by which Europeans shut up in the Americas, at least the English. They all thought the Spanish and the Portuguese were evil, but they thought the English process was justified. But, curiously enough... Locke's theory of conquest was not often the one used on the ground. John Adams and Benjamin Franklin detailed the histories of how there was actually a lot of negotiation involving consent between indigenous peoples and English colonists that resulted in most of the land transfer. We look back nowadays and have concerns about the fairness of that process, but nevertheless, that is the law that actually happened. It wasn't until the 1820s and 30s that the U.S. Supreme Court, drawing partly on Locke and partly on other traditions, characterized our earlier history as one of conquest and displacement of wild savages for the sake of civilization and economic development. What I want to suggest is there's another strand of thought within the Catholic tradition that provides an alternative to Locke with regards to this history, starting from Genesis and stretching into the colonization of the Americas, and that it resolves some of those moral quandaries in ways that Locke just can't help us all that much with. Thomas Aquinas, in the Middle Ages, wrote that, again, starting from the same place as Locke, in the book of Genesis, God gave all of creation to all of humanity, that it was held in common, that it was a gift to the human family. Aquinas also notes that at some point, privatization and individual property claims emerge but he doesn't create the same mechanism that Locke does which is that labor itself, wandering about the world and grabbing things and putting them to work, confers property. Aquinas says natural law from God allows for the individuation of property claims through law. It's a human process. It's a social process. There's nothing ontological, there's nothing magical about going out and hunting or plucking things. You have to agree with other human beings about what the rules of acquisition and property division will be, that it's a social process. Anthropologically, there's a lot to be said for that. If you went back to Indians hunting deer, that wasn't, by and large, an individual process of one Indian going out and killing one deer, claiming it and eating it. There were hunting parties. There were tribes. There were communal property norms established. Aquinas didn't know any of this, obviously. But Aquinas' account was right, that this is a social process of figuring out what the rules are. I want to focus on Francisco Suarez, who was a Thomist scholar of the Spanish Renaissance. He did know about the American context. He also wrote about property and zeroed in on that question of the individuation of property rights from an original state of holding everything in common. Suarez also argued that this was a social process. He said that natural law allowed for the individuation of property rights based on human needs, which is something that Professor Clays talks a lot about. You mentioned how Aquinas supplies that picture of human flourishing, of what's good for human beings, that helps explain the story. For Suarez, that is actually the basis for individuating property rights. Societies don't just sit down with any number of options, from complete state communism over everything to complete laissez-faire. Rather, the process of figuring out property rights has to be guided by what is a human being? What is good for human beings? Aquinas himself talked about this and gave reasons why assigning individual property rights often makes sense, including individual people take better care of what belongs to them than they do to what belongs to nobody. Something like exploitation, right? That people who have individual property rights are going to put things to better work. That's a good reason to go ahead and individualize property rights. Nevertheless, natural law itself from God doesn't do that work. Natural law leaves it open for human societies to figure out their own arrangements. Some societies are going to lean very heavily on individuating a lot of things. Others will not. Others will mix it up. To come back to the English commons example, right? Merry old England divided up categories of chattel and real estate that should be individually owned versus things that should be held in common. Locke knew that. Nevertheless, Locke attributed that to being on the far side of a social process, seeing individual claims over property as coming straight from nature. Suarez, Aquinas would disagree and say all of that is a social process. It has to be done through human reason reflecting on human needs and on human goods. Standing behind all of that for Suarez, for Aquinas, is the conviction that because God created everything for all of the human family, ultimately, the common good, the needs of every member of the human family, outweigh any rights that arise from acquisition alone. There's not some magical right that if you kill the deer, you can sit in your tent and eat it all by yourself, even if everybody else is starving. Rather, that deer was made by God. You participate as a member of society in taking it, you have obligations to society's good to use it. Societies can figure out rules that include more individual rights. It's not that everybody who does everything owes all of it back to taxation and then it gets distributed afterwards. Right? There are plenty of reasons to support a strong interpretation of individual property rights, but it's a very consequentialist approach to it. It's one that focuses very heavily on not ontological natural things, but on consequences that we all can consider as human societies. What some scholars have called that nowadays is the theory of permissive natural law. That natural law allows for things like property arrangements without dictating what form they take. Locke would be on the strong side of saying natural law dictates this. And if a society fails to do it this way, again, it deserves to be punished. As a matter of history, where I think that leads is, Locke justifies conquest. When things are out there not being used to maximum industrial efficiency, somebody else has a right to move in and take them, pushing the old owners out. Suarez and the Thomas tradition promote diplomacy and say, look, it's a matter of human dialogue, of human reasoning about the common good based on human needs. It's a rational process of law. I think it's noteworthy, although he predates Suarez, but he was very familiar with Aquinas. Pope Paul III in the 1530s did not condemn all of imperialism, but did condemn the removal of indigenous rights to property and to labor. Spain, over the course of its empire, sustained a long internal critique of the dispossession of Indian rights to land, to labor, and even to political power in ways that the English empire simply did not. When we think about what aspects of early modern thought about property to upfront nowadays, in a world where, again, I think we have a richer sense of anthropology than Locke did, we know that the world wasn't a few rogue individuals roaming about, grabbing apples off of trees and killing deer for themselves. We know that human history has always been a communal affair. People have always lived in groups. The earliest groups that we have on record, the most basic forms of social organization that we know of involve common labor, common efforts at acquiring resources. In a world where we now recognize as a matter of morality, the equal claim of people, regardless of their forms of government and societies, to have a stake in this world, and we acknowledge that there's a lot of diversity around common versus individual property, that long-standing customs around managing commons coexist with very delineated rules around personal property. I think Suarez, Aquinas, and that tradition have a lot more to offer, a much more richer multi-dimensional look at this than does Locke alone. It also bears in mind that, yeah, property is not some magical talisman that you get to run off with all by yourself. Locke makes that a narrow exception to his norm. For Aquinas, for Suarez, all of this is a socially responsible, socially accountable process. I think all that's important. So I know we have some questions coming about some of the perhaps modern implications of that. I can't speak as the reincarnation of Suarez. And at the end of the day, a lot of these questions are ones for lawyers. The last thing I will say is, because Suarez and Aquinas emphasize law so much, the role of positive laws, including of the workings out of these things in Anglo-American law, do matter a lot. I'm not calling for wiping out the slate and starting over here. Those are the agreements that our society has made. But nevertheless, I think that that moral basic framework has a lot to offer that Locke just doesn't, including at looking at the history of this country some of its darker sides in a way that allows for more criticism. So thank you.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much for that response. So uh, earlier, uh, Eric and I were discussing trying to figure out the exact property interest he had in his five-minute rebuttal. I think we said it was subject to divestment. So I'm hereby divesting you of two minutes,
2: leaving you with three minutes to respond. Okay. I hope to keep it shorter than that because I very much want to hear from members of the audience and their questions. Matt, uh, I think he he, uh, offered an interesting theoretical alternative. He went back to Suarez and to Natural Lawyers before Locke. And he focused on one example in practice that I cover in the book, but just one. So I guess I'll say these things. The book is meant to... Get as quickly as it can to walking the first-year lawsuit who just their property that Chad mentioned to how do I think about acquisition, how do I think about trespass, how do I think about the estate system, and security interests and takings and nuisance and eminent domain, and so from that perspective, the, a lot of the like I I, I give I offer a justification for property. There are other ones in the tradition that I could have friendly arguments with it, like Matts. Uh, that's one part of the book the next thing I'll say is I do cover the the, the colonization of the United States or if you want to turn it around and be more pointed the dispossession of the Native Americans who are already there that is a very important issue to think through in property law in the same way that in the Bible it's like understanding the first city was founded by Cain who just killed his brother that's making you think thoughts about exactly the the, the status of human civilization if 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 it started with the fratricide and and the the dispossession of the Native Americans serves that kind of function, I think. I'll, I'll limit myself to saying this. I doubt that Suarez or Thomas or Locke and their differences make much difference in practice. The big problem in this situation is that there's not there's not. It's impossible for there to be. It's very difficult to have a social dialogue when you have. Uh, European settlers, maybe of two to five different <coughs> European nationalities, and then lots of different tribes. There's not one society, and the society that Matt is talking about doesn't work very well if there's groups of people in it who don't trust one each o- another and want to go to force. And so there are principles of natural right that should set standards for what happened, but here might loses. To, sorry, right loses to might if people don't trust each other and can't work things out because there's not one community of trust. Uh, and w- uh, with that, like I, I think it's best to we now go to questions.
1: Great, excellent. So as I mentioned, I'll start us off with some questions and then turn it to the audience. Uh, so uh, Eric, in your book, you lay out two requirements that an individual uh, must satisfy in order <clears throat> to acquire a natural property right in a particular resource, uh, productive use and claim communication. Uh, So I'd like to ask a question about each of those. Uh, With productive use, I believe you define it something along the lines of um, one, putting the resource uh, uh, to use so that they help um, um, the survival or flourishing of themselves or someone else. So my question to you is how much autonomy does an individual have in determining whether uh, they are indeed using a resource to flourish. Uh, Put differently, when, under your theory, if if ever, could the community step in and say actually, no, you you might believe you're you're using this interest to flourish, uh, but we disagree with
2: that? On that, uh, uh, use should be understood in a way that gives people a lot of free action and practice to decide for themselves what their own projects are for surviving or thriving. So in the book, one example I give is kind of maybe an an edge case, a case where somebody cannot satisfy that is is there's a case out of the West under appropriative rights system. So in in appropriative rights for uh, property and running water, uh, somebody in order to acquire a property right must establish and demonstrate a beneficial use. And normally if you're diverting the water and you're doing something with it, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt. There's one case in which an irrigation company acquired the water and then used the water to flood gopher holes in in fallow agricultural fields, and the court said, "Okay, that's where we draw the line." But short of that, like uh, so, so like in practice, in uh, when when uh, in ordinary doctrines for acquiring things, people the, the courts ask, "Did you appropriate the thing? Did you reduce it to possession with an intent to possess it?" And those doctrines don't make these kinds of inquiries about use, and I think it's reasonable that they not because most people when they engage in the intentional activity to appropriate something, right after they're gonna do something productive and it's only in really odd cases where they don't. And the go for whole case, more could be said, but that kind of illustrates the like how casual use has to be before authorities may say that's too casual for us to let you have the property and the resource.
1: Great, and Matt, I suppose the same question to you. How might uh, either yourself or Suarez uh, view the level of autonomy in defining whether you're using the interest to flourish? How might uh, that be different?
0: Sure, I think that Locke puts a pretty heavy thumb on the scale in terms of exploitation and proto-industrialization. The Industrial Revolution hadn't happened, but certainly turning vast wilds into organized agricultural fields, I think that's a big deal for Locke. I think it's somewhere where there is some real difference between the two traditions when we think about modern issues like environmentalism, the possible exploration of outer space, which I know that'll be a future generations question, but also looking back historically at indigenous claims revolving reparations or current autonomy today. So I don't agree that the differences between the two traditions don't have a bearing on current controversies. I also think it undermines the claim that the Lockean theory actually is natural as opposed to just English and nature. Turning to the question of flourishing, I think there'd be a holistic look. On the one hand, utility, in terms of extracting resources, putting them to work, developing things, that is a concern for the Thomas tradition. On the other hand, so is the flourishing of everybody involved, from potential customers, to the people who are involved in working, to the generation of capital for use on other projects, to the stability of the social order. All of those things are factors that I think the Thomas tradition would take seriously when we think about what is a flourishing, supporting kind of a use of property. That question of solidarity as well, of creation existing for the good of the whole human family, including those who have the least, that's something that I think the Thomas tradition would upfront in a way that Locke wouldn't as much. Although Locke's proviso about not using up everything and leaving somebody with nothing does have some bearing of that as well. So I think there's a more holistic look at human needs coming out of the Catholic tradition than at least a cruder reading of Locke. And I'm not saying that you necessarily have a cruder reading of Locke, but I think that Locke often gets used in terms of let's maximize economic output and industrial development to the exclusion of some of those other concerns.
2: Yeah, I want to. Uh, some of Locke's, or sorry, some of Matt's observations about Locke make uh, make me want to respond. In that, I I, uh, I agree with Matt that Locke's general approach does put challenges on, say, a claim to a property right for a, a environmental conservation-related use. I don't think, for the reasons that Matt's uh, laid out. So for Locke, if you want to uh, fit, like acquire a plot of land and then keep it as it is because you're a preservationist, that is a use for some part of human flourishing and that you acquire a property right. The challenge then is when you claim your property right, you need to do so in a system where you're declaring your claims, these Grotian ideas about clear possession and clear claim communication. You have to do that in a system where other people are doing, putting their property to at more active uses. And so in the details of the property system, everybody has to declare their claims by rules that everybody else knows. And if more people in the community are putting their properties to relatively utilitarian active uses, and a few are putting the more conservation or passive uses, then the rules that of the game are structured in a way that it's 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 harder to accommodate the conservation-related claims. They can be recognized in the system, but they have to be recognized in a system uh, where the general rules are being set for people who want to have residences or people who want to have businesses or people who want to do industrial things. Excellent. So my second question deals with the, the second requ- – oh, we'll Go to the audience. I see a hand. Oh, up great. The All
1: audience. right. Yeah. Uh, uh, in the back, do we have a microphone perhaps? And we can also take uh, questions online. We already got a couple, uh, but the hashtag uh, is CatoSCOTUS.
3: Uh, uh, JP Hogan. Uh, to bring in some current events, this is very related to how China's acting, especially since I think it was in 2019, Z outla- changed the Ten Commandments and replaced them with Z quotes. So if there's as many Catholics in the world as there are Chinese in China, I'm looking for the Catholic perspective on responding to that. But you mentioned the 10th – someone wrote about the 10th Amendment. I was questioning that the other day because the first amendment could be read as that Congress cannot change the Ten, uh, the ten Commandments as establishments of religion. And the 10th Amendment, that is very uh, very much more limiting on what government can do. But where is the property – if China wants to take Taiwan, why should any of the uh, Countries in the world that are now going in debt to China for rails and roads feel their debt to China would be valid if China isn't going to respect like Taiwan's economy. But there's also then more try to fit this in. The Democrats shifted to spend, spend, spend from tax and spend to try to get 70 percent taxes back when Obama was the new president. So it's a matter of is our government seeing property as more a label from which they can tax so pro it's it's and tax to redistribute um so it's i'll try to leave it at that
2: i'll uh i think matt was talking not about the 10th amendment but the 10 commandments right so uh i i i think matt was misheard there on on china and taiwan that's more a question i think about natural law as it relates to the ordering of the world into distinct political communities. Uh, As a matter of property law, I think the thing would be asked is, who's residing in Taiwan, and as a matter of natural law, are they making valuable and beneficial use of what they have, and is there some reason why the people in the People's Republic could say that that what's in Taiwan is being underutilized, kind of along the lines of the, 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 the arguments that Native Americans and American colonists had that Matt was talking about as in remarks. Uh, but that, like those, I like as a matter of natural. I mean, I don't think natural law has a lot more to say than beneficial uses are being done in Taiwan, and with the, and uh, people from outside would bear a very heavy burden of justification to say we have a higher right as a mat because uh, in property terms because the land is underutilized. And after that. I mean everything else. I think that like the the, the issues that are, are in conflict are not about property; they're about sovereignty and the tradition. Whether there's always been one people of China, including the Taiwanese, and then on 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 tax policy, I, I like a tax policy like. I don't cover in the book the power to tax, but government has to have it, but government should exercise it in a way that taxes are being raised uh, or being levied for the government's genuine needs, and taxes should be levied in a way that don't discourage people, don't uh, throw out of alignment the responsibility of government to structure property rights so that people labor or act for beneficial use. So if tax policies are discouraging the kinds of activity lock associates with labor, that's troubling. Matt, did you want to follow up on that? or
0: I don't think I have much to add. Um, it's not a question of property acquisition. The Thomas tradition is less focused on, again, property as some ontological category that's just out there for the taking and more focused on human and social relationships. And so it would simply say there's two societies here or one society. Those are questions for international law and for other folks. Uh, I think to try to weed, wade too deep into the details of that would... Uh, not benefit from what Ms. Professor Clays and I have to say a whole lot compared to what other folks do.
1: Great. I think we have a question in the back corner. Thank you. I'm Daniel Raisbeck. I work on Latin
3: American affairs here at Cato. And I wanted to ask if there is something about the difference between the Spanish School of Salamanca tradition of Suarez and Mariana and the whole gang versus the English tradition with Locke that necessarily leads to um, state ownership of the subsoil in Latin America versus um, private subsoil rights in the United States, for example, which is another way to ask uh, whether or not the state ownership of the subsoil is just a gross violation of natural rights. Thank you.
2: I think that uh, I, it's a great question. I have a couple of answers. Uh, the uh, First, I try to th- respect in the book the difference. Uh, I try in the book very much to show uh, to remind the limits that natural law has in contemporary pot- law and policy. So, in all natural law traditions, there's room for what Thomas called determinatio, the determination of the implementation of natural law, and Locke gets at, at similar ideas uh, in, in his chapter on property. So. As governments, the governments secured natural rights to, to travel and to, uh, to, uh, to uh, be safe via speed limits. So, when you're making property law, there's a lot of institutional detail. And a lot of the choice, I think, between different systems about what you do with the mineral rights, those are choices that are legitimately entrusted to the local actor. That said, natural rights set standards for asking when the sovereign assigns the subsoil to private actors or to the state, uh, are those policies securing natural rights? And that, asks, that sets a tough standard that countries outside of Canada and the U.S. have to answer. Um, and I expect in the, in the, in the last chapter I'll, I'll say this is a question that should be asked about public lands in the U.S. and ought to be asked about mineral rights in a lot of the rest of the world. Uh, so like, the states have flexibility should have flexibility to make their laws that they like, but maybe they have a lot to answer for for leaving mineral rights in the state's hands. Because when that happens, then it's easier for people to see vetoed the beneficial use of those than it is for anybody to make active use on their own.
0: The Thomas tradition doesn't have a rule about subterranean mineral rights and would agree with Locke. It's a question for determination. That determination needs to be guided in light of human flourishing, human solidarity, all the things that we've talked about, human needs and human goods, and it has to be moderated through the process of rational thinking about law. So as far as the content goes, I don't know that I have a whole lot to add to what Professor Clay said. What I will say is, I think the Thomas tradition provides resources for thinking about procedural fairness. Is everybody in the community being included and heard in a way that they can contribute what their reasoned perspective is? Or is it that a few people are the ones who are determining this for the entire society? When I keep saying the society should decide, the common good should decide, I don't mean a couple of politicians and the central government should decide. This should be a process that takes into account the common good of every member of that society. Aquinas talks about distributive justice in terms of are burdens being laid proportionately and fairly on different communities and different people within a society? You can look at the public choice tradition, the libertarian traditions, critiques of political power and how it often distorts public reasoning processes, and I think build a lot off of the Thomist roots that are there and say that the rules that exist around a lot of things are often skewed in favor of a few voices with access to political power who then make them mandatory on a whole society. I don't know whether that's true of subterranean rights in Latin America, not an area that I know a lot about. Nevertheless, the Thomas tradition would insist on procedural fairness that when we're thinking about the common good, it's done in a way that includes all perspectives, takes them seriously, and tries to treat each with fairness. So to the extent that's missing, which it may well be and often is in politics. That is an avenue for criticizing it from a Thomist ground.
1: Great, well how about we take a question from online uh, and I'll, I'll put this first to Eric. Uh, Eric, is there, a, is there a relationship between natural rights to property and the law of contract? So I suppose more generally, what are we getting by recognizing natural rights of property that we might not be uh, getting uh, if we just stick to the law of contract?
2: It's a great question. I'm going to do my best to give a short answer, but it's going to beg lots of follow-up questions. So uh, natural law doesn't require that you, you could reason about natural law thinking, what's the best thing to do? Don't in all the different categories of law be damned. Who cares about these categories? Why stay within them? But natural law is very practical, and it justifies reasoning in categories that help compartmentalize different decisions focused on different things. And so, uh, different. So, uh, chapters, especially four and, and uh, five and six of the book, get into this. And with prop, so the question with properties, there's there's a resource that isn't a person and is not an obvious extension of a person, like the person's reputation. And that resource could be used by anybody. Why does one or a few? Why do a few people get priority to use it? And the questions that have to be answered when that is the question are different from the questions that need to be asked. If there are two people who are going to use their personal liberties to make promises one to each other, when should those promises seem thick and serious enough that they ought to be binding? And... You, so you, you need two systems of law, one to answer the questions about things that aren't people and why some people get priority over things and others need to owe responsibilities to respect rights and things, and another institutional framework for why people may be bound to perform later what they promised to do earlier. Great. Uh, Matt, unless you want
1: to respond to that, we have another question from online. This is from Paul S., might be our last question uh and, and and it i think it was triggered perhaps of what you mentioned uh, in your reference to the centralized government so the question is did suarez include a version of subsidiarity in his writings
0: yes there is a strong sense and again this comes back to Aquinas' thinking about individual property rights people take care better care of what is individually theirs than what belongs to nobody people put things to work more effectively when they expect to receive some sort of particular benefit from it There are reasons within Aquinas and Suarez to promote individual property rights. Today, I've focused a lot on differences between these folks and Locke, because I hope it's made for a more interesting pre lunch conversation. Nevertheless, there is some serious overlap here. So just to pull um, the actual section from Aquinas on this, which I printed out before I came over here today. Go figure, I think it's the one page I didn't grab. Quinas' rationales for individuating property are not on that page either, so you're just going to have to go off of what I said earlier. But there are concerns about good stewardship, about good productivity, about the benefits that accrue from that. And so subsidiarity is part of that, figuring out who is in the best position to use property in a way that promotes human flourishing which often is an individual or a non-government association. I mean, let's get real, it's actually rarely an individual by themselves, but it is often something that's not done through some sort of central political authority. Again, I think that there's a lot of room for dialogue between the libertarian and Catholic traditions based on that as well, but I see that our time is pretty much up, so perhaps that will be a sandwich conversation and not a stage one.
1: Great. All right. Uh, Well, please join me in thanking our panelists with us here.